Thank you. Uh, well, this is not really about bioethics, so etymologically this is about biology a bit and about ethics, uh, but it's not really bioethics as people ordinarily understand it. Now, it's sort of interesting that if you think about earlier liberal thought from the Enlightenment up through the 19th century, the idea of moral progress was pretty central to, to much of what was going on in liberal thought. But then it drops off the radar screen in the 20th century, uh, at least explicitly. People don't talk about moral progress much in the liberal tradition, and there are probably a lot of good reasons for that. And these are some of the reasons why liberals are and perhaps should be wary about talking about moral progress. In the paper on which this talk is based, Russell Powell and I focus on this one because we think it's more philosophically interesting. And we think one of the main flaws of earlier ideas of moral progress was that they weren't sufficiently empirically based. Um, they lacked, well, there were also these horrific problems often conceptual moral progress was based on an idea of morality or human excellence that was quite dubious. But apart from that, there was a conspicuous lack of good empirical support for the claim that moral progress, however they understood it, is feasible, or the claim that it's inevitable. And many of the theories claimed that moral progress was inevitable. They had a sort of iron laws of history stages of civilization view. Um, and also, they were not very good at explaining how whatever moral practices already occurred did occur, uh, nor did they tend to provide very uh, plausible empirically-based accounts of how moral progress stalls or how regression occurs. So if you're trying to resurrect the idea of theory of moral progress, you need to avoid those flaws, or more positively, you need to be able to explain the feasibility of whatever kind of moral progress you're talking about, uh, and you need to have an account of how it occurs uh, and of what happens when it, why it doesn't occur, or why it stalls, or why there's regression. Now, our strategy in this paper is, 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 is pretty uh, unambitious. We don't try to provide a ground-up account of what moral progress is that would apply to a wide range of instances of things that we intuitively think are morally progressive. Uh, instead, we focus on what we take that at least liberals will agree is one important instance of moral progress, namely a shift from almost exclusively exclusivist conceptions of morality, that is uh, roughly tribalistic uh, speciesist conceptions of morality that don't extend basic moral status very widely to ones that are more inclusive. And we try to develop a naturalistic, that is empirically grounded theory of this kind of moral progress, the conditions under which it occurs, why it occurs only under some conditions and is absent elsewhere, uh, why there's regression, how that occurs. And we try to do this on the basis of the best available knowledge about human nature and society. Um, and I think that people nowadays have something of an advantage over earlier theorists because Earlier theorists were handicapped in trying to provide an account of the, the empirical basis of moral progress because they simply didn't know enough about human nature. They didn't know much, uh, they didn't know anything about uh, evolutionary psychology, and they didn't know as much about institutions as we know now. So the hope is that given that we know more now, we can have a chance of developing a theory of moral progress that avoids some of the flaws of the earlier versions. 
And how do we do it? Well, we rely on and integrate three things. The strongest evolutionary accounts of the emergence of morality in humans, empirical work on normal cognitive errors and biases, and uh, what I call social moral epistemology. And the definition of that is parasitic on a more familiar definition of social epistemology. It's sort of roughly Alvin Goldman's definition with a little modification. Social moral epistemology focuses on beliefs that tend to be critical for the well-functioning of our moral powers, and especially on how social institutions and practices influence those beliefs. Now, um, Leckie, in his book, uh, History of European Morals, uh, from Augustine to Charlemagne, it's pretty ambitious, for book, um, <laughs> talks about the idea of expanding the circle. He tends to, to view moral progress uh, pretty much as a matter of expanding the circle of concern. And Peter Singer takes up that phrase from Lecky in a book and uses it for the title of the book, published in 2004. And what Singer tries to do is to uh, show that moral progress, understood as expanding the circle, uh, is possible in spite of what the sociobiologists were saying at that time. So roughly the idea is that expanding the circle of moral concern is extending moral standing, some sort of basic moral status, to all human beings and to some non-human animals, regardless of their group membership or strategic capacities, ability to harm or benefit us. That is the expansion of the moral community, class of beings that have some kind of moral standing, beyond tribal boundaries and beyond mutually beneficial cooperative relationships between groups. And alternatively, you can think of it as a rejection of restrictions on membership in the moral community based on gender, race, ethnicity, or species. Now, Singer has a very limited conception of moral progress. He just thinks it is expanding the circle. He doesn't recognize that there could be other kinds of moral progress. It's not surprising, given he's a utilitarian, but that's the way he thinks. And he explains, you might put explain here in scare quotes, the shift toward expanding the circle as being a matter of reasoning. That, well, I think that's right. It's just that we need to know what kind of reason, we need to know under what conditions that kind of reasoning is pervasive enough that it brings about a change in our moral responses in the direction of being more inclusive. He says that inclusivity goes against the evolutionary brain. He sort of tips his hat to the evolutionary biologist there. But he says that reasoning can overcome the disposition to exclusivity. But the big question is what kind of reasoning? Well, in an earlier paper, uh, which I was criticizing Phil Kitcher in his book, The Ethical Project, I floated a very awkward term, the capacity for open-ended normativity. It's the ability to identify the norms that we're following subject them to some kind of critical evaluation, conceive of superior alternatives and internalize them, make them effective in our behavior, and even to become aware, criticize, and revise your conceptions of moral standing. This is a pretty sophisticated capacity. I mean, you can imagine people following norms but not really having the conception of the norm, not really being able to objectify the norms, to identify them, articulate them, much less criticize them. So the big question is, under what conditions is this capacity likely to be exercised by significant numbers of people 
in ways that foster moral progress. And again, we're going to focus mainly on one dimension of moral progress, this notion of overcoming these arbitrary, exclusionary uh, constraints on who counts morally speaking. Now, I think Singer's book is helpful, but I think it's got some inadequacies. Um, for one thing, greater inclusivity isn't always morally progressive. I mean, it doesn't always uh, make things better, morally speaking. You think about fetishism defined in the original way, it's the uh, projection onto inanimate or non-human objects, powers that they don't have, and then sort of submitting yourself to those powers. Uh, getting away from that can be viewed as uh, sort of reducing one's conception of the universe of things that have moral standing or that are moral agents. And sometimes that's a good thing. Also, um, if you think that cosmopolitanism can sometimes go too far, if you think that uh, some crude versions of cosmopolitanism overlook the importance of special moral ties, then you also might think that that's another case where greater inclusivity isn't always better. That uh, some uh, moral conceptions that are in some sense exclusive are, are appropriate or that don't grant the same uh, moral status to, to all of the beings we might encounter, that that's a good thing. Now, quite apart from that, Singer just doesn't consider any other possibilities for what might count as moral progress. And we think that these are things that most of us would agree are cases of moral progress. Uh, what I call warrants of demoralization, coming to regard as morally permissible, or even in some cases morally obligatory, actions and practices that were previously thought to be immoral per se, like masturbation, profit-seeking, questioning authority of rulers, premarital sex, homosexuality. And then there's the reverse coin of that, warranted moralization, coming to regard as morally wrong or impermissible actions or practices that were previously mistakenly thought just to be permissible or morally neutral, or even in some cases, obligatory, like torture, cruelty, non-human animals, wife-beating, vendetta, honor codes. I mean, in 18th century Paris, it was thought to be a really nice, wholesome, family recreation to go watch public cat burnings. It was uh, popular. About the same time, it was thought to be wholesome family recreation to take the family and go to Bedlam and, and, and look at the lunatics and make fun of the lunatics. Now, there are other types of moral progress. Um, improved conceptions of moral responsibility that take into account mental states and volition, not simply causation and that abandon inappropriate conceptions of collective responsibility. More humane forms of punishment, improvements in how the virtues are understood, expansion of the conception of the domain of justice, to include the recognition that institutions are human creations, they're subject to ethical evaluation and modification, they're not just natural facts that have to be accepted. Uh, let me just mention, you think about types of moral progress, you might divide them initially something like this. On the one hand, there's just improvement in behavior, right? I mean, um, Stephen Pinker, in his book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, draws on an extensive literature on homicide rates and uh, cites a work which says that here in Oxford in 1350, 
the homicide rate was roughly 25 times higher than it was in 2008, which is the next time they had statistics. <laughs> now, I, mean, I think that's a moral improvement, right? Uh, but it's not clear that it's a moral improvement that reflects some uh, better moral understanding on the part of people in Oxford or better moral norms or concepts. Uh, there's a huge reduction of homicide rate in Europe from about uh, 1450 on. It looks like it's, it's at least in part due to the establishment of the, of the state, which claims a monopoly on coercion and the enforcement of the king's peace. And so it really might have not much to do with people sort of getting better attitudes toward their neighbors, at least not initially. Uh, it's just improvement in behavior. You can count that as moral progress, but it's quite different from moral progress in the sense of getting better norms or better conceptions of good moral standing uh, or better understandings of justice or something like that. Now, here's a, another limitation of Singer's view. Now, we don't need to be beating up on Singer. We're just doing it to try to get clearer on what a theory of moral progress should do. Appealing to reasoning as you know, how we expand the circle doesn't adequately explain uh, what it should explain because of three things. First of all, there's the fact of limited penetrance. <laughs> Distribution of inclusivist morality in a human population is both relatively recent, especially with things like <clears throat> regard for the welfare of non-human animals, and it's still very uneven. But there's no reason to believe that reasoning is a late development in human beings or the reasoning is only found in those human beings that tend to have inclusive morality. So you've got to say more about what kind of reasoning it is and, and what the conditions are under which that kind of reasoning is likely to produce this change in moral responses. You can't just say it's a matter of reasoning. And also, reasoning notoriously can be and is employed to justify exclusivity. So again, you've got to say more about what kind of reasoning promotes inclusivity. Because you can't just wave your hand and say it's reasoning. And finally, it looks like the right sort of reasoning is prevalent and efficacious only in certain environments, but Singer doesn't tell us anything about that. We, we try to say something about that in the paper. Now, um, I said that one of the ingredients that goes into trying to provide a more empirically grounded account of moral progress is evolutionary psychology. And the way it comes in is that there's a, there's a large literature which gives a kind of simplified view about the evolutionary origins of human morality, and then draws the conclusion that given that's our history, given that that's our history, there are some rather severe constraints on what morality can be like among humans, and that that in turn constrains the possibilities for moral progress. And here's the basic idea. Human hunter-gatherer groups in the environment of evolutionary adaptation in the middle of the late Pleistocene evolved under ecological conditions that strongly favored exclusivist moralities and severely penalized inclusivist moral tendencies. What were the conditions? Well, these are the main conditions that people cite. Severe competition for resources among scattered, weakly genetically related groups with levels of productivity sufficiently low that sharing resources with outgroups entailed dangerously high cost, high cost in terms of reproductive fitness. Absence of institutions and practices to facilitate peaceful, mutually beneficial cooperation among groups, in contrast to institutions and practices within groups that produce stable cooperation among group members, and high risk of infection by biological and social parasites. The biological parasite idea is pretty easy. If these groups are weakly related and genetically related and they're scattered, 
that each group is a virgin population for whatever infectious agents the other group has that it doesn't have. And so encountering people from another group can be literally lethal. What's social parasitism? Well, think of, suppose you just sort of uh, uncritically allow some out group person to come into your group. They may destabilize your cooperation by being free riders. Or they may just not get it. They don't understand the norms and they cause discoordination in that way. Uh, so that can be destructive as well. Now, the idea is that under those conditions, human morality was shaped in a certain way. The result of the selective pressures in an environment having those features was truncated forms of the moral emotions, especially sympathy, largely limiting the extension of sympathy to one's own group. Xenophobia and ethnocentrism, distrust of and lack of moral regard for out-group members, and all of that leading to significant limitations on the capacity for psychological and hence for behavior altruism. Now, I don't think there's a simple relationship between psychological altruism and altruistic behavior. I think that when you have the right institutions and social practices, you can economize on psychological altruism and still get altruistic behavior, behavior that mimics altruism. But in this environment, you don't have the institutions and practices that, as it were, extend your psychological altruism and its, and its results. Now, what's evoconservatism? Um, this is a term that Powell and I coined to cover a whole bunch of people from different disciplines who accept this simple picture of the evolutionary origins of human morality and then draw conservative, pessimistic conclusions about morality and politics. And we, we uh, quote some of the people in a really extreme cases, Poser and Goldsmith in their book, The Limitations of International Law. They say, well, you know, here's the evolutionary story. Therefore, uh, all this talk about uh, human rights and cosmopolitan global institutions is just hot air because we're not capable of that kind of thing, right? We're people who are engineered for these sort of small groups. Well, what they don't explain is how we got the nation state, right? I mean, you know, there are 303 million Americans and a lot of them are willing to die for each other. They've never seen each other, et cetera. And if, if some sort of cooperation extends that far, why assume it can't extend, extend any further? <clears throat> Now, the evil conservatives are kind of muddy as to exactly what they're saying about how pessimistic they are about all of this stuff. So we try to sort out several different views. Um, the first one is the most extreme, that inclusive morality is merely aspirational. You can talk about it, but it's not going to be behaviorally effective. It's not going to affect the way our institutions and practices work. Because human moral emotions, such as love or sympathy, are not are, are hardwired to be quite limited. A second weaker view is that even if somehow you get some movement toward inclusivity, it's not going to be durable uh, because it goes against our brain. The strong exclusivist tendencies of evolved human moral responses will inevitably undermine whatever inclusivist developments have occurred. The third view is that inclusivist moral limits have already been reached. And the fourth is that efforts to realize inclusive as moral ideals will encounter serious resistance from our evolved inclusive tendency. Now, Powell and I are happy to endorse this, but in the paper we criticize the first three, we reject the first three. 
Um, and most of that work is done in a paper that's about to come out in ethics called The Limitations of Evolutionary Explanations of Morality. What's wrong with the first thesis that you know, inclusive as moral commitments are just uh, aspirational. Well, I mean, think about it. Think about what's already going on for significant numbers of human beings. There is better treatment of non-human animals or some non-human animals. And this is not just aspirational. It's actually changing the law and social practices in ways that are quite costly to us. Uh, also, many people now regard many moral norms as universal, as not restricted to members of their race, gender, or ethnicity. And then there's the whole phenomenon of the modern human rights movement, which has been institutionalized to a large extent and has produced a radically new body of international law and transformed domestic law in many countries. And there's also what you might, what I call in a much earlier article, subject-centered morality. That is, it's a conception of moral status such that individuals can have moral status even if they don't have the strategic capacity to harm or benefit us. If you think of somebody who has a, a, the, the different conception of moral status, what you might call uh, the mutual interest reciprocity view, think of Gautier's book, Morals by Agreement. Right? On his view, the idea of being a moral subject vis-a-vis -vis somebody else is that we're capable of engaging in cooperation in some way. Well, uh, this idea that that's all there is to moral standing goes way back. You find it in some utterances of Glaucon and Platonic Dialogues. You find it in Epicurus. You find a whiff of it in Hume. And it's basically the idea that, that uh, we only confer moral status. It only makes sense to confer moral status on beings that can either harm or benefit us. And I think we've moved away from that. Some of us have moved away from that. What's wrong with the second thesis? Well, um, because evil conservatives don't really have any explanation of how we've gotten the inclusivist developments that we've gotten, they don't have a good account of why they're not likely to last. They might last or they might not, but we don't have any particular reason to think that they're not durable. And for the third thesis, well, uh, for the same reasons, there's no reason to think that we've reached the end of the evolutionary leash, that, that we're not going to be able to make any further gains uh, in inclusivity or with respect to the penetration of this idea across different populations. And we provide a richer explanation uh, of how the biological underpinnings of morality interact with environmental and cultural factors, and that explanation doesn't give any reason to think that we're at the end of the story as far as inclusiveness developments go. In fact, our view actually provides, you'll see some guidance for how you might achieve further progress. What's wrong with the fourth thesis? Nothing, as far as I can tell. Um, it, it may be that because of our evolutionary history, at least under certain conditions, uh, there's a kind of strong resistance against uh, some forms of inclusivism. But not much follows from that. So there's the summary of the argument against the evo-conservatives. Now, one thing I'm not going to go into here, but in the, uh, the first paper, 
and we'll summarize it in the paper on the system space. We say, look, you know, there are two basic kinds of evolutionary explanations of morality. There are selectionist explanations, and they divide into standard selections explanations and sexual selection explanations. And then there are byproduct <coughs> explanations. And what we do is go through all of those alternatives and show that none of them can adequately account for the actual cases of inclusivity that, that already exist. Just as a kind of a, a hint of how that works. I mean, think about better treatment of non-human animals. Uh, it's hard to see how either in the environment of evolutionary adaptation or even much later, that would have been uh, a subject of selection. That is, that it would have been conducive to reproductive fitness. And quite the contrary, in the, in the original environment of evolutionary adaptation, it would have been disastrous. So what's our account like uh, trying to remedy these deficiencies? We try to help a richer account of the conditions under which inclusive morality is likely to flourish. And the key is to try to eliminate the conditions that foster exclusivist morality and help create the conditions under which the exclusivist morality can flourish. Now, what are those conditions? Well, that's where the evolutionary story about the environment of ancestral adaptation is relevant, right? It tells you what the environment was like that fostered these exclusivist tendencies. And then, presumably, that gives you some reason at least to think that the further you get away from those conditions, the more space you have for the development of more inclusivist morality. That's the basic idea. And we advance four hypotheses about the environmental conditions that are relevant to the development of exclusivist or inclusivist morality, respectively. First is the luxury good hypothesis. That inclusive morality is a luxury good that is, it's only likely to be widespread and stable in favorable conditions, namely those in which the harsh conditions of the EDA have been overcome. Second, the subjectivity thesis, that inclusivist gains are likely to be eroded not only if those harsh conditions return, but if enough people think that they've returned. And third, the cognitive and social epistemology thesis, Evolved cognitive biases combined with effective social epistemic practices can cause people to believe that the harsh conditions of the EEA are present when they don't exist, and hence can trigger these exclusivist responses. And finally, the self-fulfilling prophecy thesis, if enough people believe the harsh conditions exist, they'll act accordingly, and their acting accordingly will actually help bring about that they do exist. Now, we, we then rely on two well-confirmed empirical assumptions, namely that in-group, out-group biases uh, are among the most cross-culturally robust of human psychological characteristics. Second, the development of exclusivist moral tendencies is sensitive to environmental cues of out-group threat, having to do with infectious diseases, expropriation of scarce resources by out-group people, and physical attacks by them and also foreign beliefs, norms, or practices that are dissonant to those in the in-group and thus threaten group cohesion or are believed to do so. These are all threat cues which can activate moral responses which were selected for in the environment of evolutionary adaptation. And these threat cues trigger negative moral emotions, fear, disgust, trust, anger, dispositions toward aversive attitudes and behaviors toward outgroups. Conversely, negative responses to outgroups tend to be lessened 
in environments in which such threat cues are not present. And let me just say one thing about the threat cues. I mean, if you look at the kind of language that people use to try to motivate others to commit genocides, or the kind of language that was used by the eugenicists to try to encourage people to undertake programs of compulsory sterilization, or in the case of the Nazis, of so-called euthanasia. There's a striking preponderance of language that has to do with infectious disease and agents of infectious disease. Parasites, rats, cockroaches, plague-carrying fleas and rats. Right? Remember Hitler's uh, propaganda film, uh, The Eternal Jew. It begins with a hatch of a ship opening and a swarm of rats are coming out. Okay. It's not an accident that this kind of language is used to try to mobilize extreme hatred and, hatred and dehumanization, revoking moral status against outgroup members. It's not, it's not an accident at all. It's explained given this account of the evolutionary origins of these kinds of attitudes. So here's an important interim conclusion. Exclusive morality is not hardwired. Everybody says it's hardwired. It's literally not hardwired in the sense of being a constant tendency present under all circumstances. Instead, it's a conditionally expressed trait that only develops under specific environmental circumstances. It's not the default mode. People seem to think it's the default mode. There's no reason to believe that. Instead, it's much more likely that it's an adaptively plastic trait. It's triggered when threat cues are present but may not be manifested at all when they're not present. In fact, there's actually a good evolutionary reason why it would be an adaptively plastic trait rather than a default standing disposition. Even in fairly early human environments, there were occasionally some opportunities for beneficial cooperation with strangers. It would be much better if you had a conditional response so that when threat cues are present, you tend to react hostilely, or at least not in a cooperative way, without group members. But when the threat cues aren't present, you are able to act in ways that, that allowed cooperation that was mutually beneficial. Now, over time, the environmental factors shift so that there are more cases where there are possibilities for mutually beneficial cooperation without group members. And at that point, you can't take advantage of them, right? If you're literally hardwired for exclusion, for for negative attitudes toward people. So there's good reason to think that, that it would have been more advantageous to have uh, a conditioned kind of environmentally sensitive response rather than a default standing response of this uh, exclusionary or negative sort. So the good news is that inclusive morality is not hardwired. The bad news is the same resources used for cultural innovations that foster the inclusivist morality can be used to dismantle it, triggering exclusive responses. Now, in the paper, we say more about, we say a lot about how certain kinds of cultural innovations can uh, expand the circle or enable us to extend moral regard to uh, others that we previously not extended it to. Uh, and it, you know, it, it runs the gamut from uh, markets, which enable mutually beneficial cooperation with people we don't care about, to uh, little bits of social moral technology like the golden rule, which uh, enables you to, to extend regard to people by putting yourself in their position. There's a whole range of different kinds of, of cultural innovations that can 
extend our regard under the right circumstances, under the right conditions. Um, but the problem is that, uh, I mean, all of those rely upon uh, a sort of a passive folk psychology and a folk social epistemology. And people can often use that knowledge of our psychology and of the way our social practices affect beliefs for just the opposite uh, reasons. Uh, that is to dismantle the gains that we made. One of my favorite examples is that in Claudia Kuntz's book, The Nazi Conscience, she, she cites a uh, passage from a teacher's manual in the third right for public school teachers. And it says, uh, you're supposed to teach your students not just facts, but also values. And of course, one of the most important is the golden rule, with the proviso that it only applies to racial comrades. Right? Now, that's a, that's a great example where you have a very inclusivist kind of a bit of a social moral technology, the thought experiment involving the golden rule. But it's being modified in a way that restricts the scope of regard to a certain group and excludes others from the scope of the norm. So we talk about the manipulation of belief to create threat cues to trigger exclusivism, dehumanization, which is well documented, especially in the Holocaust literature which generates cues of threat parasite, mentioned that before, also physically sequestering members of the other group in an environment that makes them filthy and diseased, reinforces this threat cue, activates it, makes it more potent. And of course, the exaggeration of threat or violence that our groups pose, standard techniques, Exaggeration of the threat that foreign ways pose to one's own groups, cohesions, and values. I think about Patrick Buchanan's statement a while back, you know, let all these immigrants in, you're going to be hearing bongo drums on Main Street. And then the implication is that the entire social fabric will unravel if you hear bongo drums on Main Street. Right? <clears throat> and exaggeration of the problem of scarcity and prevalence of zero and some situations. There's a, a literature about the origins of World War II that's quite illuminating here. It looks like that a lot of the leaders uh, and some of the population of the, uh, the fascist countries and uh, Japanese militarists really bought into a kind of nationalist version of social Darwinism and thought that international relations was just a bloody conflict uh, to the death uh, and that countries had to compete over scarce resources uh, to survive, and that they combined that with this doctrine of, of economic autarky that said that you had to actually control within your jurisdiction all the resources you needed for your economy. And the result of this is uh, uh, a moral psychology of other nations which attributes to them you know, that they're basically a, a, a threat, a, a, an existential threat. And if enough people believe that and act in that way, then you get a, a, a great impetus toward uh, preventive wars. Um, and a, a, an abandoning of the, of the few international institutions like the League of Nations, which actually provided for some possibility for peaceful cooperation among nations. And then, you know, once you've undermined those, it's, it's again, sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Countries have to rely more on their own might to get along. Now, the cognitive biases that seem to be operating in some of this uh, cultural manipulation to, to uh, invoke the threat cues, uh, there's a wonderful book by Hirschfeld called Race and Making, and also a paper by uh, 
Sarah Jane Leslie, which I think is very important here, Hirschfeld argues that cross-culturally, children at a very early age have a, a kind of a tendency toward uh, a natural kindness of centralizing ontology. They tend to divide human beings that they encounter or even hear about into different groups and to assume that all the members of the group share a common hidden essence that's very strongly deterministic of the behavior of members of the group. Mary Jane Leslie points out in uh, empirical literature that indicates that also cross-culturally there's a very disturbing tendency for people if they uh, observe or think they observe threatening behavior in one member of another group, they tend to attribute that behavior to all members of the group. And it doesn't work in the other direction. If you observe friendly behavior, you don't tend to overgeneralize that. It's an asymmetrical attribution error. And there's, in terms of evolutionary risk management theory, there's a reason why you'd expect that asymmetry in the environment of ancestral adaptation, because in that environment, uh, if you encounter a stranger, you need to make two mistakes. They're quite different. One is to be overly trusting, and the other is to not be trusting enough. That is to forego a genuine opportunity for mutual beneficial cooperation. And because there's so few uh, social infrastructures for mutually beneficial cooperation, and because the threats posed by uh, parasites and competition for scarce resources are so great, the, the downside of making one error is much greater than the downside of making the other. So you expect there to be selection for people who are biased toward one kind of error. So the bottom line is that evolved psychological mechanisms that contribute to exclusive moral responses can be triggered by the manipulation of belief through the exploitation of defective social epistemic practices, including misplaced extreme deference. That is, the Nazi mobilizers of violence were very good at this. They always co-opted people who were uh, people who occupied positions of uh, epistemic authority in the society <coughs> they were working in. And all of this helps explain regression using the same explanatory model that explains progress. And that's an advantage of our account, I think. So what's the role of culture? Well, cultural innovations can foster environments that are favorable to inclusive morality by actually mitigating the features of the EPA that are favorable to exclusive morality and that penalize inclusive morality. Things like reducing scarcity, uh, raising productivity enough that it's not uh, dangerously costly to extend surpluses to other people, providing infrastructures for peaceful, peaceful cooperation among groups, all those things, thereby creating conditions in which the capacity for open-ended normativity, this kind of critical reasoning about your norms and your ideas of moral status, can develop in this direction. So what are some of the advances? Advances in food production and reduce severe competition resources, medical, nutritional, and public health innovations that reduce the burden of infectious disease, development of institutional infrastructures that enable peaceful, mutually beneficial interactions between groups, security arrangements that reduce the violence between groups, including institutions of punishment that replace vendettas. And what are some of the cultural innovations that then, after these other innovations have created a space for inclusivity, what are some of the innovations that actually move us to occupy that space? Well, think about how some Christians, especially initially Quakers, reinterpreted an existing cultural resource, namely their idea of Christianity, uh, reinterpreted it so that they thought it was incompatible with slavery and with tolerance of slavery. Um, 
that was a huge move in the direction of inclusion to extend uh, basic natural rights to uh, African slaves. Um, think about how the abolitionists appealed to both emotions and the reasons to change perceptions of the moral status of African slaves, combating false beliefs about natural differences between blacks and whites, and that blacks don't have sufficient reason to have natural rights, and also don't suffer in the way that whites do. Um, and similarly, uh, uh, with respect to non-human animals, think about the techniques of the animal liberation people. On the one hand, they uh, make us aware of the terrible practices we engage in and inflict suffering on animals. They tell us about the, the, the comparative anatomy of pain and that uh, try to convince us that animals really can suffer in the way that we can. And then there's also the idea of developing better moral consistency reasoning. An interesting paper by uh, Campbell, his first name, I can't remember, Victor Kumar, on moral consistency reasoning, which is a form of what we call open-ended normativity. Um, all of these things are, are cultural innovations, and they can't occur just anywhere, and they can't become pervasive and socially potent just anywhere. That's the point. Uh, you have to think about the conditions under which they're likely to do that. So how do you facilitate moral progress and prevent regression? Well, here's a list of kind of uh, things that are, are obvious in a way. It's just that we're looking at them in a different way. We're seeing them as fitting into a, a patterned explanation of how moral progress occurs and how there can be regression. Um, alleviate the harsh conditions of the EA where they still exist. And the harsh conditions don't just exist in failed states or extremely poor countries, they exist in micro-environments within developed societies. Some urban environments, for example. Uh, you avoid, then you try to avoid regression to EEA-like conditions. In particular, you prevent the, try to prevent those who mobilize exclusivist moral responses by exploiting social epistemic resources to dismantle the cultural innovations that have fostered inclusivity. And you try to combat the normal cognitive biases and social epistemic practices that hinder inclusivity. A bit more concretely, reduce the incidence of infectious disease, increase physical security, foster economic development to increase social surpluses, easing economic competition in groups, create institutions to extend peaceful, mutually beneficial cooperation among groups, develop better social epistemic practices. Now note, all of those things could be done without explicitly appealing to the idea of moral progress, and we're already trying to do some of them without any idea that they're connected to moral progress. And this raises an interesting question. Do we do better if we articulate and get some social consensus on an idea of moral progress and on a theory of conditions under which it can occur, and then, as it were, explicitly and try to directly try to pursue moral progress? Or is it better if we do it sort of implicitly and indirectly? In the past, the, the explicit efforts to pursue moral progress at the social level have been disastrous in many cases. Not in all cases, but in many cases. So, important to remember that nothing we say in this paper says, here are, you know, here are society's marching orders, uh, and there are people who know what moral progress is, namely us, and people like us should be given authority to try to achieve moral progress. Nothing about that follows whatsoever. There's, there's not a whiff of that in the paper. Uh, although one of the people who reviewed the paper uh, attributed all of that to us. <coughs> uh, so one of the things that the theory of moral progress you have to address is how can you best achieve moral progress 
in a morally acceptable way. And then the other question is, um, shouldn't your theory of moral progress include an idea about how we can make progress in our conception of moral progress? So I'll leave it with that. Thank you. I take it all back. Okay. Poverty, physical insecurity, and war zones, bird infectious disease do not just cause death and suffering. That's bad enough, right? That's the main problem. They also prevent people from attaining the moral excellence that human beings are capable of. I mean, some people can attain the highest moral excellence in the worst conditions, but it's certainly a handicap for many people to attain moral excellence if that includes the sort of inclusiveness outlook, right? If they're in these terribly harsh conditions. So there's an additional injury to people who are in the conditions, basically the conditions of the environment of evolutionary adaptation. It's not just that they're suffering and they're poor and they're insecure and they're subject to infectious diseases. It's that because of all that, it's much less likely that they and the people around them are going to be developing morally progressive outlooks on life. And that's an additional problem. Okay. Encores. These are encores. Okay. Here's what we've done. We've begun to develop a naturalistic theory of moral progress that avoids the lack of empirical grounding of previous theories, steers clear of parochial racist ideas, avoids the progress is inevitable iron laws view, explains why one form of moral progress is so difficult and so incomplete in its penetrance, and explains stalling and regression. That's really the thing. <laughs>